But you, you talk to me first. Okay. And away we go. Welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am Brian Kerman. Today we're, uh, we have an enjoyable uh, friend with us, Anthony Scarmucci, and he's author of a new book, Trump, the Blue Collar President. But Anthony, since the title of it is Just Ask the Question, I'm going to just ask the question, what's wrong with American politics? Well, I don't even know where to start on that, but I love the fact that you reference me as enjoyable because you know I'm going to say something unpredictable <laughs> and undeniably vintage me. And so you're like, okay, and that's why who, I enjoy who knows, it. Who knows what could be happening at this point, right? <laughs> but but the, the the main thing that's wrong with politics now is that we're 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 divided for no reason. And so at the end of the day, these guys just want to stay in power. So they've set up a system of division where the normal people disaffect from the system and the crazies uh, stay positioned on the left and the right and enhance their power and perpetuate their power. So we have to flood the zone with more normal people, both from a political perspective and from a voter participation perspective, if we want to save our civilization. How do we do that? Right now it's going down the tubes. How do we do that? Well, I mean, one of the things you could do, which the Republicans would never allow, is mandatory voting. So you could do something like what they do in Australia. And so I, I believe if you had mandatory voting, it would surprise the Republicans. There's a lot more moderate center-right business people out there and center-left social people. And that would, by and large, help the Republican Party, but they don't believe that. They think that uh, if they just look at current voter registration, there's more Democrats that are registered than there are Republicans. And so they would be very nervous about that. But if you look at any country that has mandatory voting, the principles inside the country and the policies, uh, they start to mainstream out and they become more commonsensical as opposed to so polarized and so left or right-leaning, depending on the administration or who's in charge of the Congress. Well, in hearing you say that, it, it sounds great in theory, but in practicality, I mean, if we're going to be practical about the matter, right now, it, the left and the right, they don't even talk to each other. Yeah, well, that's another example of what's working for them. So they just want to stay in power, Brian. Okay, these are hideous people, right? I mean, I'm just being honest with you. Maybe there's a couple Left of— Left and right? Yeah, there's a couple of do-gooders, but this is an indictment of the entire establishment. There's a reason why Trump won. I mean, the American people hate these people. Okay, And so let me just give you, like, a perverse thing to say, okay, because you said I'm enjoyable. Let me give you a perverse thing to, <laughs> to think about. Okay, you ready? You want to balance the budget in five seconds? Let me show you how you do it. You ready? Yeah. You got 535 of them. You give them $20 million apiece in after-tax cash that— gets wired into their bank accounts if they can balance the budget. So each participant, 535 of them, you each get $20 million, go balance the budget. They'll be working like the engineers on Apollo 13, you know, at the table right. to get the budget balanced. The $20 million gets wired into their accounts. Uh, it only costs the Treasury $10 billion, and you've got a balanced budget. Okay, and the point being is that they only really care about the incentives – that drive their power or drive their ability to make money. It's a business model for these people as opposed to a public service. You show me the person that's really serving the, the public. It's just not. So, But if you give them $20 million and you change the entire incentives and you reduce the lobbying and you uptake the actual pay, they'll start operating like people that really care about the country. You've got to balance the budget. You can't run it the way we're running it. It's ridiculous. Well, Trump's running a heck of a deficit. No, well, you know, I, I, I think if he were on your podcast, he'd say, I'm running the deficit because I was trying to fix the military, 
and they feathered, the left feathered so many things in there as it related to pork and so on and so forth that I accepted signing it. You remember that day in the Roosevelt Do you agree with that? that? I I agree with it a little. I don't agree with it a lot. I think that uh, responsible people uh, need to right-size and realign what the appropriate expectations are for the American people. This generation of people running Washington have over-promised people, and they're overspending as a result of those overpromises, and it's nonsensical. And it's and it's and it's it's long term having a drag on our civilization. Well, let's and and so we're talking about post Trump when we talk about how to bring people together. Let's talk about the current situation. Well, that's sad. Let's kind of just interrupt yeah. you. You say we're talking about post Trump to bring people together. I really thought the president uh, was going to position himself less ideologically, and he was going to sort of be like the Gerhard Schroeder of American politics. And just so your listeners know, he was the Chancellor of Germany from 02 to 06. Uh, He got elected by labor and he got elected by unions. And he looked around and said, okay, this is a disaster. I have to reform the German labor markets. And so the people that elected him were upset with him because they thought they were going to curry, he was going to carry their water. He didn't. He was focused on all of Germany. He got blown out, but what he did was, in that process, he made Germany way more competitive. Only Western nation running a budget surplus. Well, that's and all right. Uh, so compare and contrast that to France as an example. Right. Well, let's, but speaking of our current situation, in three days we face the imminent possibility of a government shutdown, and Trump, who did campaign on cleaning out the swamp, has become another swamp dweller. With this, there are people who he said, you know, look. I I will, you know, the art of making a deal, I'll be able to cut a deal, I'll be able to do something. If the government shuts down, as you said, people are tired of government as usual. No, I find that people are less ideological these days, the majority, and they want results, good results. So the president's positionally bargaining. He's basically making a bet right now that the other side will blink and not not want there to be a shutdown. Okay, and, and the other side's looking at it and say, wait a minute, if, we, if he's willing to own this, and we can call it a Trump shutdown, and uh, people start to get their services disrupted, uh, then they'll tag him with it. Uh, and that's sort of what happened to Newt Gingrich back in the mid-'90s. So, and isn't that politics so as usual? Isn't politi- that what people are, are Polit- sick of? Politics as usual to the third power. I mean, so people are sick of it. Um, the politicians don't care. They're inside their own little bubble. Um, and so what they're going to do is they're going to do exactly uh, what they've been doing. And so you're talking about impeachment. That's 1998. Right. You're talking about a government shutdown. That's 1995. Okay, <laughs> so you pick the period of time that we're in. We're reverting back in time uh, because it is business as usual, and it's a shame. It's a shame to see it happen. You know, you know I have an enormous amount of respect for the president. Um, even though I got bounced pretty hard, I stayed very loyal to him. You mentioned my book. I wrote a very positive book about the campaign. Uh, but, you know, the swamp does things to people. It, it, it turns people into the creatures that the American people despise. How so? Uh, well, they're positional bargainers. And what would you do um, to change that? Um, well, I say you have to change the incentives. You have to change the incentives. But you say have to, $20 million Well, I'm giving each. a ridiculous example. I know you're we're, big, not, we're, not, we're not doing that, but I'm saying practical to, incentives. Okay, so how about pay-as-you-go legislation? Remember that from the 90s? Yeah. You know, you got to put guardrails, and you got to say, "Listen, we got to protect you from yourself." I mean, uh, one of my friends was asking me why I'm so illiquid. I'm going to have some money aside, you know, for emergencies, but I, I have stuff illiquid because I'm protecting myself from myself. So I'm having impulse purchases. I don't make any, 
dramatic consumption-based uh, things with the money that I've made. I've got it in real property and private equity and long-dated assets that I know will compound and protect my family. So I'm protecting myself from myself. The American people need that device inside the Congress. They need pay-as-you-go, which will stop them from uh, raising social services without raising taxes or will stop them from what they did last time, which was cutting taxes without cutting any element of the budget. And so, you know, you know this and I know this and most economists know this is that deficits are unfunded tax liability. Someone has to pay it. Now, if you want our to, children are going yeah, to pay this, or or you can monetize our grandchildren. it, or you can monetize it. You can print more money. We are the reserve currency, and you could print the money to monetize it. But then you're going to decimate the middle and lower class. And I'll just give you a very specific example. Go back to August of 1971. The uh, ounce of gold you could purchase an ounce of gold for 35 American dollars. Today, it's 1,250 American dollars to purchase the same ounce of gold. So just think of the magnitude of monetization that we've done to our own currency over 47 years. And yes. you can feel that in middle-class wages. You can feel that in lower middle-class living standards. Um, and and more, no one can live on a minimum wage. But more dramatic than that, more dramatic than that, um, just go to the Latin American companies. They devalue all the time, and the rich are okay because the rich have inflation-based assets, and the poor get annihilated. And so – we're allowing that to take place because we have a lack of courage in our politicians. And so why does that happen? Because they got to get along in that swamp, and they got to play by the swamp rules to survive. Now, one of the uh, criticisms against you is that you have continued to carry water for the president. But having spoken with you, there are areas you definitely disagree with the president on, and you've made them known. Yeah, well, I'm, I, look, I like the president. So, I mean, if, if I'm being criticized for being loyal to somebody – that I consider a friend, that's fine. I'll accept that criticism all day long. Um, Can you be friends the, with someone and disagree with their stance? I believe so. I believe that sycophancy and I believe that flattering is a is the words next to those words. We can words. say ass-kissing. It's yeah, a podcast. Okay, so <laughs> ass-kissing for the podcast. Ass-kissing is closer to the word selfishness, and it's closer to the word self-preservation. So let me kiss your ass because I'm afraid to lose my job. That's ass-kissing, okay? Uh, honesty is way closer to the word loyalty than flattery. I would rather be honest and direct and constructive and helpful uh, under the guise of and anchored to, hey, I really like you. I'd like to see you do better. So if somebody wants to criticize me for supporting a friend that happens to be the president of the United States uh, and telling him what I like and dislike, well, that's fine. I'm not going to break ranks with the guy. What do you disagree with him on? Pick pick the worst thing that he could be accused of. Still not going to break ranks with him. Okay, I, I didn't break ranks with Michael Cohen for that matter. Okay, Michael Cohen's a friend of mine. I'm trying to help him and his family in this hour of need. Did he make a mistake? He obviously did. Did he plead guilty? He obviously did. Is he now going to serve a sentence uh, as a payment for the crimes that he committed? Yes, but he's a friend of mine. What do you want me to do? You right. want to cut and run from him? In my neighborhood, we didn't learn to cut and run from people. No, okay, you, we, we, we learned sounds how to like stick. my neighborhood. Yeah, that's exactly. So, so people say, well, you're being criticized. You, you're still supporting the president. You're a toady or an ass kisser. That's not true. You tell me the issue. Mr. President, be more strategic with your tweeting. Mr. President, you can't separate women from children at the border. I think that's a disgrace. Mr. President, uh, don't knock the intelligence agencies on the national stage in Helsinki. I think that's wrong. Mr. President, tone down some of the rhetoric with these politicians in dealing with the trade situation. You get the deal done better, and you'll get it done faster, 
and you'll least re- le- you'll unleash less havoc in the markets. I've been very honest. What about the like Justice the Department? Well, I think I think the, I don't know the Justice Department situation as well as I know some of these other situations. But I think the guy that he picked for the Justice Department right now, uh, if you look at his qualifications, he looks immensely qualified. And he looks like somebody that could inspire trust in people that have been in Washington a very long time. He had the attorney general position right. 30 years ago. And so I think it's probably a good choice. Do you think so, that the damage that this president done has done can be undone? Or do you think in, it's in much— In what a, topic? What damage? Well, let's talk about be the specific. damage to— uh, Let's talk about the uh, undermining of the trust in the press, undermining trust in the uh, Justice Department, in the intelligence community— uh, climate change, all of those things where his critics say he has done irreparable harm to the Republicans. Okay, so let's, let's take one at a time. Okay, the, yeah. press, the press is totally fine. If anything, the president has actually made the press stronger. I disagree with the war declaration. I disagree with the tone the administration has taken with the press. And you were there. I turned the lights and cameras back on when they yes. gave me the job for the 11 days. And and so, the, and so I, I was believe, it 11? <laughs> don't start with me, okay? You know I like you. Come on. If you start on the 21st <laughs> I get you. and you get blown out on the 31st, it's not 31 minus 10. It's 11 days. You know, it's, like 20, it's just 11 days. Trust it's me. one mooch. It's <laughs> unbelievable how much criticism I get for the 10 days versus the 11. But the point I'm making is that I believe in the free press and I believe in the fair press and holding people accountable. And berserkly and ironically, the president has made the press stronger. Uh, the ratings are up. Uh, the intensity of the investigative journalism is up because of the war declaration. And he's done something. I was with uh, one of your press colleagues, Katie Turr, mm-hmm. uh, and I explained to her, and you have to forgive me, I can't remember the name of her colleague, but she had an NBC colleague, Hallie maybe? Is it Hallie? Yeah, Hallie. Okay, so she asked the question of uh, Press Secretary S- Sanders Huckabee, Huckabee Sanders. Right. And then Sarah said, I'm done with the question. Let me go to the next person. She turned to a Politico uh, journalist, and the political journalist said, I cede my question time back to Hallie. Were you right. there for that? Yes, you I that? was. So that's an example. The press is strong. Because what the, what the president has ironically done is he's galvanized the press as a result of his wartime declaration. So they're sticking together. They're working with each other more closely on stories. Their ratings are up, and we're in a fight of our lives, which is totally unnecessary. We could have been in an adversarial relationship with the press and a rigorous debate with the press, which every president's had, uh, without the war declaration. So that's one. The intelligence agencies. I think he's done very little harm to the intelligence agencies because he's walked back most of the statements that he's made, thankfully. Um, the There was a, another one you said. What was the other uh, one? The Justice Department. Justice Department. Climate change. Well, the, the Justice Department, I think with the changes that he's made at the top, I think that will cure itself. I think that there but, will but be. But his call there for the deep state and, and building the suspicion against people—that's a hard thing to. It doesn't go away overnight, because there are people a, that are in their a, own. There's a hardcore group of people that have a natural systemic distrust for the government and, and so, the press, yeah, and it and feeds I, I into wish, it. I wish he wasn't feeding into that, but I don't think it's going to have long-term systemic damage. Because Other than those people who already are it's a, it's a believe min- that way? It's a minority g- group of people. But it does. But you said something else. You had another. Climate change. Climate change. So that's a big problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the climate change and what I don't get about the Republicans is let's say, and maybe you have people on the podcast that believe in climate change. Let's say they don't believe in climate change. Let me play devil's advocate for a second. Let's say that I'm stipulating 
scientifically, humans do not cause climate change. Now, please don't put that. I'm like, now, I don't want that to be I, because I, I, I believe I believe in climate change. Yeah, okay, I, I believe it's. Man-made. I know you do. I believe in climate change. I've said that publicly. I believe it, man. But I want to make a stipulation to prove a bigger point. So now I'm stipulating no man-made climate change. The toxins and the carbon emissions that are being put into the environment are killing our children. Okay, if you go to Beijing, 75% of the people have asthmatic conditions below the age of 13. And so even if the pollution, the systemic pollution that we're creating is not leading to the melting of the polar ice cap or causing these, you know, cosine sign uh, variability in our weather patterns, it is destroying the health and the sanctity of the animal life it's and killing our people. children. Okay, so that should be enough for a politician to say, "Hey, let's reduce it." Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So I don't understand why we're even having a debate because if you have a debate and I say, which I do believe, it's caused by humans, and the other person says that it's not caused by humans, we're both getting to the same solution in the equation: right. fix the problem, reduce the emissions. Make for a cleaner civilization and society. But it, it, that's all money because people who own the uh, engines of, of, of production do not want to invest the money in so, it. So let me tell you something, okay? The, the new racism, okay, and the new horrors are the dirtifying of the environment. So let me fast forward. It's 2350, assuming the civilization makes it. And they're looking back on 2018. And they're not going to like you, Brian. And they're not going to like me. They're going to say, those people were disgusting. We cleaned up the environment. It took us 100 years to clean it up. We're all solar-based or alternative energy, non-carbon-admitted energy. And we're finally cleaning, cleaning and healing the country. But let me take the statue down of Brian. Okay, because yeah, you're never going to find one of those, brother. Okay, okay <laughs> because he was a pig. He was flying around in a plane, and he was driving a car that was spewing smoke into the atmosphere. Right. And so the statues that are going to come down three or 400 years from now, the same way we're taking statues down from racists that held slaves, are us. Okay, we're going to be judged by future generations as a group of disgusting people for what we're doing to the environment today. Let's go back a little bit to what we were talking about on the press. I happen to know that, you know, and um, I, in full disclosure, I, I did ask, but you gave to the fund for the uh, Annapolis, for the, Cape, uh, for the Capital Gazette, yeah, for the funds there. It's my pleasure to do that. I mean, uh, you, first of all, you reached out and told me you were doing a fundraiser. I gave the money because I knew, know it's a great cause, and uh, it's freedom's beacon. The press is freedom's beacon. Any philosopher, any understanding of the Western canon of individual liberty incorporates a free and fair press. Because uh, what's the biggest minority in the civilization, Brian? You tell me. The individual. Yeah. Okay. And so at the end of the day, the free and fair press is there to protect the individual and the sanctity of that person's endowed rights from the creator. And so when you take the free press away, uh, and, you, and you breed an autocracy or a dictatorship, you start to see the elimination of individual liberty. You see censorship or you see the blocking of ideas or concepts. Uh, that's the destruction of the individual. So I now know reporters, friends of mine, who have bodyguards because of some of the things that President Trump has said. You've been a staunch supporter for the free press, and it doesn't mean 
that the press and government always gets along. It is a natural adversarial relationship. That's true. But what would you tell this president, and how would you rein in some of his his worst desires when it comes to the press and calling us fake media? Well, the first thing I would say to the president is hire somebody that you really trust, okay, who has your back, uh, and you can start to ring fence yourself from the things that you don't really 100% like. Uh, end the war declaration on the media. Uh, give me six to 12 months to prove to you that it's going to be better for you and better for the administration. Um, you're concerned about the Mueller investigation. Let me work with your legal team to ring fence that as well. You'll tweet less about it. Let's get you focused on policy. You think you could get him tweeting go, less? Go, well, I think you, I think he tweets less. No is the answer. The short answer to the question is no. <laughs> no. But I think he tweets less strategically when he feels well fortified with lots of media advocacy. We found in the campaign, Brian, if we had 10 guys out there talking on TV and doing stuff on social media and, you know, pushing the president's agenda, less strategic tweets. If you didn't have that going on and there was a news anchor here or there that was being critical of him, he would fire an ad hominem attack at their facelift or their personhood or, or things like that. And so, so I know, and I wrote this in my comms plan, uh, more advocacy, more media uh, savvy people around him, the less strategic tweeting he'll, he'll do. I really, feel, I really saw that. You know. what, do you, what do you see in the future for the next two years for this president? Um, I see, um, well, I mean, I'll, I'll paint two scenarios for you. The good scenario is he cuts a deal with the Congress and he gets himself an immigration or an infrastructure deal. I think that's very positive for him, and that will frame a nice narrative for him going into the 2020 election. The darker scenario is something's up in the Mueller investigation beyond what Ru Rudy Giuliani and Jay Sekulow and guys like Alan Dershowitz see, uh, and there's something darker there. It doesn't necessarily have to force him out of office, but it could be um, some rough facts that lead to uh, – an emasculation of the presidency, which I would be saddened by, you know, because I think there's a lot of things that he's doing from the economy's perspective, and there's a lot of things he's doing as it relates to the African-American unemployment and the Hispanic-American unemployment situation in the country is very good. So I see a positive situation where he cuts a bipartisan deal and he moves forward to re-election, or a more or, or darker situation. You know, Judge Napolitano said the other day that he may be a sealed indicted co-conspirator. You saw that. Right. So if that's the case, then that's a bad set of facts, and that's going to have a rougher scenario and a rougher outcome. But again, I'm not going to break from the president. I'm here to help him and help the country. Okay, so people that Why do you want to help him? What is it that you find redeeming in him? Well, it's not even... That him. others it's should the, find. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, I had a long relationship with him and his family, and uh, we have a good rapport with each other uh, outside of the world of politics. Uh, and I don't, think, I don't think you really understand the heat in that kitchen, to quote Harry Truman and to, like, botch mm -hmm. it up a little bit. I don't th think you understand the heat in that kitchen until you're standing in the kitchen. Right? Yeah, that's true. And so he's been heat blasted by that furnace, uh, and my heart goes out to him and his family. I think it's a very hard job, and it's become increasingly harder. Moreover— I'll Does he what, deserve I, that heat? Uh, 
uh, in elements of it, yes. In elements of it, maybe it's unfair. And but by the way, you know what? It doesn't even, how he deals with it. It doesn't even matter, Brian. It doesn't matter whether he deserves it or he doesn't deserve it. He's getting it. He's getting the full on heat. <laughs> well, there's less. a fact there. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so to me, you know, uh, the next president's going to deal with it, and the next president that's going to deal with it. It is a very rough environment, and it's a intense fishbowl. I call it a boiling fishbowl. It's not so much that you have. You tell me the members of the press that descend upon the White House. Is it 2,000? I don't know the exact number, but you get 2,000 people looking at you in the aquarium. But then there's a – you're sitting on a stove. You have the fish bowl on top of the stove, and the water's boiling while you're swimming in it, okay? And so it's a rough thing. And so, um, you know, he may have done things that are regrettable. He may have done things that are wrong. But like I said at the beginning of this podcast – I'm not cutting and running on my friends. I get they've that. Done something wrong. But what do you find no. that's that you like about what policies I, do you like, and what do you well, want to see him? The policies at? that I like, I do think that he has helped uh, the delayering of the regulation. I think has helped the economy. It's fostered growth. Um, I think that the uh, the policies at the border have definitely helped the African American and Hispanic American uh, labor markets. It's tightened the slack take the slack out of the labor supply as a result of the reduction of illegal immigration. I think he's been creative on the trade front. Um, It's a little bit too aggressive for me as it relates to me being a stock market person. I wish he'd calmed it down a little bit. I wrote an op-ed about that last July. Uh, But I think he's by and large been correct about forcing the Chinese to the table, resetting NAFTA and things like that. And of course, he may end up with a deal on the Korean Peninsula, which I think would be historic if he can pull it off. So There's elements of stuff that he's doing that most Americans really like. But what it's coming down to right now, Brian, it's a struggle between his personality and his policy. And there are elements— You think his policy is getting lost by his personality? Yes, I think think there's a millstone of stuff that's going on in his personality that's affecting people's judgment of him and his policies. I think his approval I won't disagree with you, but if you look at the stock market, you're a stock market guy. It hasn't been good lately. Well, we're stock, running deficits. Yeah, uh, the stock, tax cuts stock, help the rich, but not the poor. Stock, stock market hasn't been good uh, for a number of different reasons. Some of them not related to him. Some of it is the algorithmic trading. Some of it is the evacuation of principal from the Volcker rule. Uh, some of it is just seasonality. Uh, if you look at October and November, they've been rough months for the stock market. Uh, although this December has been probably the roughest month since the Great Depression. Right. So. So it's telling you that people are concerned that the trade situation hasn't been resolved and people are, are concerned that uh, the way the president is tweeting at the Fed, uh, he's clouding the theory of Fed independence. And so if I were offering the president advice, I'm not saying he would take it from me, but I would say get out there and say, hey, I believe in the independent Fed. And I'm going to stop Monday morning quarterbacking the Federal Reserve chairman. I'm going to let him do what but he, he thinks he can't do that. Okay. Well, then that's. that's, I mean, do you think he can? You you know him better than I. I I would say whether he can or he can't. Let's assume that he can. I would say to him, well, you're contributing to elements of the volatility as a result of not doing that. So, if you're a champion of the stock market, you want to see it go up. These are the behaviors you should choose to allow that to happen. If your impulses are such where you cannot allow yourself to do that, then you're going to see the systemic volatility be maintained because people are concerned about your interaction with the Fed chairman. I want to ask you a question that, um, and it's, it, it, and hear me out to the end because it, it covers a couple of areas. But he, in the beginning, said, "Look, I want to hire. You know, I'm going to hire the very best people." But from the very beginning, there were some of the very best people who would not work 
with this president, and they didn't come into the administration. So taking both parts of those, a lot of these people have, that he did hire have been indicted or quit or left, and he's left with, like, you've got one guy holding or been three fired. jobs or been, or, been fired. Fired. <laughs> or been fired after 11 days, not 10. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so then you've got, that you was know. really stupid of Kelly, by the way. I mean, I just, you know. I, I agree. I, I mean, you're making, I mean, so stupid. Okay. All he had to do is say to me, hey, Aunt, I don't want you around here. And I would have said, okay, no problem, John. Uh, it's uh, the middle of the summer. Why don't I take a powder? I'll go dark. And on Labor Day, I'll figure out a way to leave in a low-key sort of a way. I've given a ton of money to the president. Countless hours of media support. I'm faithful and loyal, I liked to, his, your, faithful I, uh, and loyal to his agenda. I did make a mistake on the phone with a reporter, and if you think that's a fireable offense, I'm fully accountable for the mistake. But to fire me the way he fired me, he set himself up to fail well, because he created this kind of scare tactic, militancy in the culture of the White House that was already damaged by the previous imbalance. I loved your comms program, by the way. I you still know. think your comms plan was the best thing. Well, I mean, that, I would have, and, and I would have implemented any reporter, and yeah, I think they'll and agree I would, with it. I would have implemented the comms plan. I would have loved and to have, have seen it. I would have reduced some of the drama in the area, but I made a mistake. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they convinced the president. And by the way, I'm just saying just Kelly fired me. I'm sure the president sanctioned right. the firing of me, and I'm sure there were others in the administration. But that he did. still not, likes you. Yeah, and I like him, but I'm I'm saying it's it, to me that was like a stupid thing. But you're asking a more broad well, look, question look, about look, I like haven't got to the question. smart people, best and brightest. Why but, did they come into the administration? No, the the question I have is, even if the president of the United States asks you to serve the country, yeah, and you're one of the best and brightest, and you don't agree with a president, yeah. and you let someone of lesser quality take the job, aren't you putting yourself above country at that point? Did because so. of the, be, I think so. Because of I mean, I, his personality, honestly, did he put himself in a box with the best and the brightest? Um, I think, and did they, and were they short-sighted in not coming to I, work? For I, him? I think it's a combination of things. I think he has a certain style in his personality. Once you really get to know him, uh, you like it. There's a likability factor to him, but his superficial style, the elbows are so sharp that you feel like you're going to get gashed or disemboweled by him or your reputation is going to be made lesser by the experience, you know. And so in some ways, I got hit very hard after I got fired. And so in some ways, it hurt me. But in some ways, it enhanced me. And, you know, So my attitude was I was there to serve the country. I had that stupidity about myself. Uh, you once asked me a question. I want to hit you with this microphone and bang it over your head because it was so true. The question you asked me was, well, people think you're smart, but they think you're politically naive. And your response is, and I said, I am not politically naive. I'm politically naive to the ninth power. Remember me saying that? Yes, I did. And it hurt me. For the Playboy interview. Yeah, it hurt me to say that because it's true and it's a weakness. Um, I went into the situation uh, very naive. I didn't understand the systemic uh, venality of the people that are involved in this thing that the American people call the swamp. So. So the president's up against it. He's in a tough spot. He's hurt himself in some ways. He's helped the country and others. And, uh, yeah, I mean, if he gets, if he gets, if, Mul if he permanentizes Mulvaney or he picks somebody that he genuinely likes to take the role of chief of staff, uh, that person can recruit the best and the brightest people for him. Well, except that I'm in agreement with the president. Like, Listen, dude, I'm going to bring this guy in or this woman. They're superstars. Lay off the Twitter on them. Let's get him in the right spot. Let's give him a lot of headroom to run in. You and I, you know, you and whoever the chief of staff is can manage the guy. 
but let's take it easy on these people because we want to recruit more good people like this. And all of a sudden, the thing will start working the way the Trump organization did, uh, and it'll, it'll run like a sewing machine, and he'll step back. He'll, he'll be more relaxed. Has Kellyanne Conway hurt him or helped him? That 39-minute, and a reference to 39-minute well, conversation she had I, with Chris. I think that Cuomo. she has, I think that history will judge her as, by and large, helping him. Uh, she's had thousands of hours of interviews, so did every single interview help him? I don't know. I have to analyze the tape of every interview. Um, but I do think that she helped him. Uh, he won 52% of the white women voters in the country, and I think you could point to Kellyanne. I'm talking about surrogacy. since. Since, Since I think she has, by and large, helped him, and I'm sure that there are isolated interviews and isolated situations where she's hurt him, but I think the composite of her has helped him. There is a growing movement among people to say, look, keep her off the airwaves. She coined the term alternative facts. Mm -hmm. And there are other people who are saying, listen, um, the president deserves to have his surrogates. He's the president. Yeah. They need to be heard. Yeah. So, Well, you know where I side on that. I, I mean, at the end of the day— um, I think that the all le- voices le- should be heard is my yeah, opinion. The, the, the but left has to be very careful because I'm not allowed on certain campuses because I support President Trump. My alma mater, for an example, I mean that's it's great news for me because it saved me millions of dollars of charitable donations to my alma mater. But <laughs> I'm not allowed on their campus because of my views. Okay, and so there's an intolerance to the left uh, that I think from is the unfo- left, yeah, from the left, I think it's unfortunate. You know, it if used- you don't agree with me. You're going to shun and blackball me? Okay, that's fine, but now you're losing the discourse. The marketplace of ideas should be free. Now, someone will point, well, Kellyanne is lying, or Anthony Scaramucci is lying. And I would say, no, we're not lying. We're telling you what we think, given the situation. And so you may not like what we're saying. Well, in Kellyanne's position. I'm not lying. I tell you what I think. Okay, well, not, you've I, told I, me I, that I, when you thought the, the president is not I, – I, yeah. look, I will say point blank. I'm not on his staff anymore, right? Yeah. If I was on his staff, I'd have to say, listen, I can't really comment on it. I'm here to support the president, and I don't want to really diver- diverge from him. So you're asking me a question I'm uncomfortable answering. I don't want to comment on it. Well, that's, that's different from answer. Kellyanne pushing back with oh, facts that aren't facts. I understand that. I, I mean, isn't that, isn't I, that a more judicious way to do it, as I, you suggest? I, I think it is, but let me tell you something. Kellyanne is a survivor. She's been in the job for two years. I don't know how many mooches that is, Brian, but it's a lot more mooches <laughs> than I got. So she knows what she's doing. Okay, she's pretty confident. That's about 65 mooches. Yeah, she's probably 60, okay. <laughs> Kelly lasted 46 mooches. So, you know, he's obviously 46 times better than me at White House duration. Do you think that um, – what do you think this administration – when we look back on it 20 years from now, yeah. what do you think this country should have learned from what's gone on? It's very divisive right now. We've got to dial it back. We've got to heal the country. I think I am hoping that the next group of people, if the president doesn't make a course th- correction. Which Help I me would do that, like, brother. Well, here's what I would say. Number one, I'd say, Mr. President, let's make a course correction. You, you campaigned on being less of a partisan and so let's make a course direction correction. You know, Barack Obama, you know, a lot of respect for the president. He campaigned on bringing us together and healing the nation. He operated stridently partisan. He may disagree with me, but that's, I think, the facts. I, I, and, and, and President Donald Trump campaigned on the notion that he was going to be this non-ideologically driven deal guy, business person. Uh, but when he's gotten the job two years later, like President Obama— uh, he's leaned on the partisan side. And so what I would say to the president is do what Gerhard Schroeder did. Take a chill. He's 72 years old. Love the country. 
let's get in the middle here somewhere and cut a few deals and let's try to heal the nation. Do facts matter? You know, they do, absolutely. So when the facts, when this administration is faced with facts that it doesn't like, yeah. it seems to dismiss them. I think, I think they got to stop doing that. You, know, you, you point out the spots where they're doing that, and I'll call those out. I'm an honest person. I don't, I don't, I don't like alternative facts. You're saying that the president is lying, 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 like John Byrne was trying to hold me up on that. The president likes to exaggerate. He likes telling a story. He's an embellisher. You know, he is what my grandfather I've would say. I've noticed that. He, he, he is what my grandfather would say. Why would you let the facts get in the way of a good story, right? So he'll say 92% when he doesn't have any idea. And he'll say this or he'll say that. It's in a way, it's a speaking style. It's a marketing approach. And it's also done to antagonize people. He knows if he says a stupendous lie, somebody on the left is going to set their hair on fire in a television studio and run around in a circle. And he likes it. Yeah, so, so we so, should chase that less and the facts more. Yeah, I would just say, okay, look, he sold a lie or he said something that I disagree with or he said something that's factually inaccurate. He probably did it to embellish the story. Let's move on. But if it's a hard-hitting situation and a serious thing and there's a mistruth coming out of the administration, it's your job uh, to call him out on it. And if you were sitting in the spot where John Kelly is, would you call him out on it? Absolutely. You told Absolutely. me one time that— have to. You told me one time that people take an obsequious pill when they walk into the president. Yeah, no question. They all are flattering him, and they're trying to kiss his ass. And you got to be very careful. I, I view myself as a pretty strong-minded guy, independently made entrepreneur. Uh, but it is the presidency, and there's an aura in the Oval Office. And so you need somebody in the chief of staff's position that's not going to alter their behavior when the president walks in the room. And you know all of us have had people in our lives— well, the person comes in the room like, okay, i got to check my behavior. Right. Well, and that's not me. That. But <laughs> well, it's not you. <laughs> it's and not it typically you. isn't me. But there have been times where I have modified what I'm saying. I wrote about it in my book that, you know, the presidency is such an awe-striking thing. And you do have a tendency to do that. you got to be careful of that if you're his chief of staff. Do you think he takes advantage of that? Uh, no, I don't think he takes advantage of it, but I think he's disadvantaged by it. Because people will whisper in his ear and tell him things he wants to hear. Yes. I think he's disadvantaged by it. I think – I'll go back to uh, – last point, I'll go back to what we uh, – where we were on the South Lawn with John Kelly. When I brought up that issue with him and he said John Kelly was leaving, he was asked about Mueller, and he admitted he had not read any of the papers or any of the filings in the Cohen case or Flynn, but he was told by staff that everything was okay. Mm-hmm. Can you take bad news to the president? I think that's sort of news again. Yeah. I mean, I, I look, listen. Uh, Instead of Gi- kissing his ass. Giuliani, Sekolo, Dershowitz, um, you know, respected people. They don't think he's on the edge of illegality. And so they probably told him that. When I've looked at the stuff, okay, and I haven't read through the entire filing, but I've looked through the stuff. Right. Uh, what Michael's accusing the president of um, if he can't seek the John Edwards defense, then he's going to have a tough time. If he can seek the John Edwards defense or he can seek the defense that I turned to my attorney and said I have to fix this, fix it in the most legal way possible, and he was detached from it, which Michael says he wasn't, by the way. Right. But if, if that is the case, you know, like, I, yeah, look, there's, there's my story, there's the other person's story, and then there's a story in the middle, right? There's three sides to every story. So we have to let the facts unfold. Um, but I think as they currently stand, I don't think the president is on the edge of illegality. If he is, 
invite me back, and then I'll tell you what I think you should do. I, I, that doesn't that mean I, I'm not going to be his friend. I, I, That's my personality. Look, friendship, gonna, I, I get you, brother. Okay, guy, friendship is say, one thing. You shouldn't have done that. That is really stupid. Now, how are we going to help you and your family? That's and, what I would but do. But putting country first. Putting country first. Well, if he's done something stupendous, putting the country first, you know, you may hate Richard Nixon or not hate Richard Nixon. He did something stupendously wrong. Uh, and he got drawn and quartered, and the Republicans started to back. It wasn't until the Republicans backed away I, that's from exactly him right. that he said, "I'm going to get out of here." And putting country first is not to put the country through your trial conviction in the Senate. So, could you okay. be that guy that said to him, "Look, you, you need to step I, away." You got to tell me what the facts are. Let's really look at the facts. Yeah. But you could you, if the facts. the facts said that? Of course, of course, of course, well, they could be. We'll end it let me, on that. Let me, let me tell you something, okay? Um, I could have never got. If you read my book, you'll learn about my family. I just got it. I promised okay. to read it. Okay, but I could have never gotten here if I didn't have a set of nuts on me. Okay, now I'm a little nuts, but I do have a set of nuts. I'll tell you what I think. I appreciate okay. it, and right, I appreciate God, you being God here, bless, man. I really. Man. All right, thanks you got a great, you got a great podcast. Okay? Well, it's so, a lot of fun. So uh, ask the question, Brian. Just ask you, the question. You have no shortage of the capability of doing that. That I do whenever I can. Right. Thanks for joining us. Right, I love God to have bless. you back. The name of the show is Just Ask the Question. I am Brian Karam. Thanks for joining us. Merry Christmas. Yeah.